Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's money dash M-O-R-P-H-O-S-I-S dot com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Hello, this is Crystal Arnold, your hostess and founder of Money Wise Women and Money Morphosis. For any listeners who uh, don't know that I um, also do a full article and write-up that you can read on moneymorphosis.com. Just go to the podcast um, section of my website. And so that's a great way to to get a better summary and, and find some of the links that we mention here. So money, let's Let's talk about money. It is one of the most uh, taboo topics. However, it's something that we all encounter in our daily lives and need to make decisions about and communicate about. Yet much of our behavior is driven by subconscious beliefs and early childhood experiences. And uh, this is why I am so fascinated by money, our relationship to it, and its its connection with our mind and and the way that we um, operate and and become more empowered with it and more comfortable with money, uh, so that we can invite greater prosperity and ease into our into our day to day lives. I am so pleased to have our guest today, um, Sally Palian, here with us. She is um, a leading psychologist and um, financial uh, commentator. She has a very um, unique uh, and insightful perspective about uh, people's intimate relationships with money. She's uh, been a psychologist in private practice for over 30 years, specializing in the treatment of addictive behaviors, which include money, food, alcohol, gambling, relationships, and sex. And uh, she also helps people who have had trauma and works with the Imago Relationship Therapy. She wrote this incredible book. It came out in 2009 called Spent, Breaking the Buying Obsession and Discover Your True Worth. So um, Dr. Palian utilizes a practical approach to help individuals and couples make long-term financial and lifestyle decisions through visioning the future and creating a spending plan to make those dreams come true. She speaks nationally on the psychology of money, compulsive spending, shopping addiction, paying down debt, developing budgets, and financial underachievement. So excited to share her perspective here with you today because I'm sure many listeners have struggled with some of these um, compulsive behaviors and want to find more peace and ease with, with your finances. 
so pleased to have you here today, uh, Sally. Um, would love to begin by hearing from you what what you find most exciting about the work that you do. Thanks, thanks, Crystal, for inviting me, and thanks for um, hitting me on your show. What I find most exciting about the work is seeing people make their dreams happen. She, you know, like when people are able to really may align their values with their spending and sort of save towards different dreams that they want to have happen for themselves. I love that when people are able to do that. Mm. Yeah, it's so great when money can be a tool for manifestation and not something that creates stress and dread and fights with loved ones. Um, and and this topic seems so appropriate today. So many people are, you know, more and more in debt and and filing bankruptcy, losing their homes and and outspending what they really can afford. So I think it's a really timely and important conversation to have. Absolutely, yes. Particularly mm. for women. Yes. yes. So let me hear a little bit more about your own background, your own money story, and what brought you into this field. Well, I've had sort of a long journey into getting into money coaching and financial consulting for people. I started out as a youngster uh, pretty lost about money. I was pretty, I don't want to say irresponsible, but just sort of ignorant about money. My family took care of it. They had enough money, you know, plenty of resources. They actually grew up somewhat sort of upper middle class where we had caterers come through the house and parties and travel and stuff like that. And I never thought about money, never worried about money. It was never, I wasn't, was not allowed to get a job. They said I didn't need to have a job. So I kind of was pretty innocent and naive about finances until my family lost their money. And then I was um, at college, you know, having to put myself through school. And I had never worked before. So I didn't really know where to start, and um, I was able, luckily, I'm old enough that college was pretty cheap then, I was able to get under my, get through my undergraduate by paying for it myself, and, but I was pretty lost for a long time about money, and drifted, and, you know, didn't know where I was going, what I was doing, but I got out of college, and, um, like I said, just sort of drifted around, I didn't know what path I was going to go on, until I found a therapist that really helped me understand uh, that what I had been through in my childhood was financial dysfunction. That my family was not an alcoholic family, but they were financially dysfunctional. There was lots of excess, but then lots of then the loss of money and the lack of responsibility about, you know, catching it before it went too far with the financial loss, um, being proactive. So I, he helped me understand a lot of things that were had been driving me were about my family dysfunction. Um, so slowly through time, <laughs> I kind of got myself worked to learn practical skills, read a lot of books about how to get organized about money, uh, learned how to make spending plans and budgets for myself, slowly worked towards um, earning more money and getting my life on track financially and, you know, f- furthering my career, never thinking I was going to get into working with money with people at all. It was just I was on my own re- financial recovery journey. Never at all, never once thinking I would be helping people around this. But my friends started noticing a difference in me, and they wanted me to help them. And I really felt like I, you know, I didn't know what to do to help them. But they kept insisting, several people insisted, 
that I, you know, sit down with them to help them crunch their numbers and, you know, figure out their budgets and that type of stuff. And so I was willing to do that finally with some friends. And the next thing you know, I was speaking about this topic. And the next thing you know, <laughs> people were sending me clients. My friends were sending me clients to work with uh, to help them with their finances or to work through blocks that they had about their finances. And it just kept, you know, unfolding. This whole career path just unfolded for me. And it was not something I initially attend- intended at all. And I decided to write the book because um, people were calling me that didn't have the money to pay me for financial coaching. And I felt badly that I couldn't help them. I didn't know what to do. It was not in my best interest for my own financial recovery to take on more people that were at lower incomes or whatever, lower fees or rates. So I, I felt bad. I was sort of torn. So I decided to write a book because I thought, well, you know what? They can buy a book. It's a reasonable cost. They can learn some stuff from the book. So that's why I ended up writing the book. But I decided to write a very practical book so that people could, you know, take some tools and go off and utilize them on their own. So like I said, I never yeah. dreamed I'd be on this journey, but I love the topic and I, I love working with people with money. Just not something I would, would have thought out or thought I would ever have been good at. Wow. Um, but here I am. <laughs> nice. I love that story. It's so great what yeah. the what the world called forth from you and, and just uh, you know, wow, what what a time uh timely book too, you know, coming out right after that two thousand and eight financial crisis and so many people had lost their investments and just having a real reckoning of, well, what's really valuable for me and, and am I overspending? And I, I can imagine that was uh, really um, well received at that time. Absolutely. It was. Yes. Because we're, I think we're, we're as a society, we the American culture sobered up somewhat since 2008 about money and about excessive spending People are getting more practical. There's still a lot that are not practical about it and don't really, are not conscientious or mindful of their money. But I think we've come a long way in the last 10 years about this. People are getting a little bit more grounded. Mm. Um, yeah. Let's, let's talk about, you know, some of the big influences that really drive people to these compulsive behaviors and, and some of the you know, the the mainstream messaging that really impacts people and, and I see people really feel like I'm not enough, there never will be enough, there's kind of this scarcity and I'm curious as a psychologist if, if you could help explain to people some of those um, influences and, and how they impact people's mental state. Well, okay, so the I'm not enough scarcity that I who I am is not enough in the world or um what's happened here is that our our desire system has kind of been messed with and our sense of selfhood in this society has been defined around what we have or what we perceive or how others perceive us, what others perceive us to have, exactly uh materially. And so that ends up resulting in people feeling like they're not enough because they don't have enough stuff or they don't have fancy enough stuff or they don't have the right image or whatever that's uh, sort of all that material focus is about. That's pretty much where that comes from is our selfhood in the material culture has been shaped around stuff, things, image, high-end, as opposed to our selfhood being shaped around who we are, what we can do, how fast we can run, how how well we do 
arithmetic, how giving we are, how loving we are, how creative we are. Those types of qualities of a person are less focused on and more of the focus is around material stuff for people in terms of how they develop a sense of self, what they believe themselves to be. Mm. And I, I have a I have a sense, Crystal, that people, I think of it as the big picture. I call it the material spiritual spectrum, where on one end we have the material things of life. We all are we're animals. We have to survive, right? So we need food, clothing, shelter. That's one end of the spectrum. And that's the material end or survival spectrum. But as humans, we also have big brains. We also want things like transcendence and connection and love and belonging and happiness and creativity. And that's like the spiritual side of the spectrum. I call it spiritual. It could be intangible. I don't like the spiritual word. But that we have both, right? We have we have needs for both. We have needs to survive physically, and we have needs for you know transcendence, or I call it transcendence. You know, like to be happy and to be fulfilled and have meaning on the other end. So what's happened in our society is we've promised people a whole lot of fulfillment to the material end. And that's never going to do anything on that end except help us survive. Um, It can't really make us be happier or more creative. Mm. No matter how many art supplies we have, if we don't have it, it doesn't really matter. Um, So we've promised, our advertising industry has promised states of being, happiness through states of being, through stuff. It Mm. promised us that we can feel happier, sexier, whatever, more fulfilled, more peace, more serenity. Um, through stuff, through things, mm. through possessions. Yeah. So that's kind of like it, our signals get mixed up inside. And so our sense of self then gets kind of confused about what really who we are. Mm. And from there, do we have enough? Are we good enough? Are we worthy enough? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That makes so much sense. Um, and when you explain it like that, it really is. Um, so much suffering I see people, you know, um, when uh, around financial issues and and uh, I, I I mean, would you agree? It is such a powerful time to redefine both wealth and success and include not only the material and the financial um, aspect, but those other more holistic sense of well-being and joy. Absolutely, yes. We have wealth on, yeah, we need to redefine wealth because we are, and abundance. We have tremendous abundance in our society of creativity, of beauty, of nature. Um, mm. Right now I'm visiting people in the desert in Arizona, and today we were on a bike ride, and it's like even in the desert where there's hardly any water, there's blooming things, and there are plants trying to give off more shoots everywhere. There are weeds. You know, it's sort of an interesting thing. There's an abundance here. When mm-hmm. there's drought, you know, no water. There's still mm-hmm. abundance. Nature is still trying to produce and reproduce and expand. Mm. So, yeah, I'd love yeah. to redefine wealth because wealth and abundance because there's plenty for all of us. Yes, yes, so important. Yeah, I've uh, I've created a, something called a true wealth template, which has not only financial uh, wealth, but also three other aspects 
the inner wealth, uh, which you were speaking to more the spiritual, you know, emotional intelligence our um, yeah, our own gifts and, and abilities and then our relational wealth and, and all the relationships that we have and our environmental wealth and our, you know, work environment, our actual land and air and water. And so, yeah, I just see that this is really crucial for humanity to to look beyond the the numbers and the finances and see what makes life meaningful and enjoyable and how can we cooperate and share to to have a better functioning society. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, you've talked to go to more of the personal level, like you have talked to so many people over the last decades about money. So give us some insights into like some of the top financial challenges that women in particular have. Well, I'd say like the first one that people have in terms of like the emotion, you're talking financial challenge per se or the emotional components that underlie some of that. Um, I would say kind of the underlying um, underlying yeah, okay problem. So first, first off, I'd say codependency, and that term is kind of used and misused and all kinds of things. But being feeling like you're not moving from your own center, instead of uh, you're focused on other people's perspective. So codependency in terms of money looks like wanting to be noticed for buying fancier clothes or cars or household items or whatever, or buying. Um, excessive gifts or whatever, wanting to be liked or accepted by others. So that can lead to spending, buying gifts that are, you know, beyond, you know, the relationship. That can lead to excessively buying things for yourself, trying to please others, looking too much focus on material values from the outside. All of that is all underneath that for women is this codependency. A lot of times women overspend on other people. Um, And the things women tend to overspend on they're not necessarily things like mas- uh, massage, self-care things, or they're not necessarily things like education. They are getting taking too many trainings or whatever. Usually women are overspending on clothes. Uh, sometimes it can be adornment, you know, nails and that type of stuff. It can be household items and it can be gifts. So that codependency that's underneath there, wanting people to see you, notice you, love you, accept you. Women have more of a harder time because we're so relational. We want mm-hmm. to be accepted by other people more than more than men do. Um, mm-hmm. So that that piece, um, being too focused on that need to be liked or noticed is, is a big one. That'd be one school I think women have. Another one would be things like not taking responsibility for themselves about money, like mm. deferring to somebody else, a spouse, to handle it to be the bean Mm -hmm. counter of the family. Um, Not taking responsibility, things like not investing time and energy to get conscious about money, to really learn about finances, um, to start adding up your numbers, looking at them, being willing to open those bills and add them up and see what's really happening, checking your stocks and see what's happening with that. I think there's a lot of... um, fear about money management. And maybe it's a math thing. I don't know if some women have some math blocks. You mm-hmm. think they can't, you know, do math. You know, it's complicated math. It really isn't, but I think numbers are complicated, so some women maybe avoid it for that purpose. I don't really know why, but I do know there's a lot of avoidance. Um, mm. and deferring to other people. 
And then that makes sets up the dynamic of being a child. Someone else is going to take care of it for you. And I think women tend to get caught in that trap. But I really try to empower women to become like students of mine. We're all, we all need to be students and learning constantly. It's changing. Our lifestyles are always changing. Um, get educated about it. Get conscious about it. Always be willing to learn and to grow. Uh, maybe not to obsess about it, but to at least take enough responsibility for your own finances so that you can make your life happen. Hmm. Um, I'll be a second one. Ready? You want me to go? I keep going. So that's good. Yeah. It's it's um yeah those two. I can see yeah this maturity and this empowerment that's that's being called forth in in women and how much our patriarchy has has really I mean women couldn't even own um, you know uh, land you know century ago and uh, just right. being able to uh, to heal all this and and come into our power and and bring balance back into it it's uh, it takes uh, a lot of work and individual empowerment to to become an empowered woman in a patriarchy Absolutely, yes. And, yeah, so not only do women, women allow them not to own property, have houses, but to get credit cards or to get credit. Yeah. There's many, many areas, yes, where women have been sort of, you know, we haven't, we're still coming out of that. Where it's hmm. a hard thing for women to take responsibility. Um, but we need to in order to have more financial, you know, flex our financial muscles a little better. A little yes. Yeah. Um, was there um, another one you'd like to share? Okay. So the other thing that I've learned is that uh, I would always encourage women to take time to learn about their own values, learn about who they are uniquely. Who are you really? What drives you? What's your main goals? What's your main um, things that you love? Do you love, you know, taking care of other people? Do you love nature? Do you love um, aesthetics and beautiful things? Uh, because people, when they're in discrepancy, there's a discrepancy between what they spend money on and what their real values are. That's when people get into trouble. And I encourage people, one way to find out if you're in alignment with your own values is to be thinking about, like, if you buy things or spend money on things that you regret, you later regret. And everybody has a million mistakes we've made and things we've bought that were, we later regretted and we may have, you know, been happy for five minutes or maybe not even five minutes sometimes. And think about that and feel what that's like inside you. Like, how does it feel to remember that purchase and how you spent money that time? And then also... Conversely, think about what purchases you've made or how you spent your money, when you spent your money in alignment that made you happy. And maybe it still keeps, and when I've done this with groups, a lot of times people will say things like when they bought the piano or when they took their kids on the Disneyland trip or when they bought their pet and they spent extra money on their pet, you know, like purchases like that. If they're still happy and they still satisfy them and they still bring some meaning to them and there's not a regret about it, there's really just still joy about it, that's how you know when you're in alignment with your values. You've now spent money on something that you sustains you and fulfills you and makes you feel like there's, you know, it's a good use of your finances. So taking time to learn about your values is a really important step I think people, women, can be making for themselves. And the last mistake I think women make is that they don't assert themselves. And, again, that one underneath it comes from not feeling worthy or entitled or afraid of having the, the power that money can bring, so not asserting yourself to ask for more money, not asserting yourself to complain about something if it's been a bad purchase, not asserting yourself to reclaim money owed you, 
that type of thing. And um, so many people have shame and guilt about their own opportunities. And the part of them, they have shame about the part of them that wants to reach for more and hold back. And I always encourage women to go for, you know, asserting yourself is a really powerful thing. You can bring mm-hmm. in more of what you really want. Get you more, get you more financial power. Help you flex those muscles. Yes. Yes, I love that. Um, I can just really imagine as you're talking a world where more and more women are um, stepping into their power in these ways you described, getting more comfortable, asserting themselves about money, really more intimately aware of their own values and, and finding their actions and their spending is, a, uh, is aligned and bringing greater satisfaction. And I, I see how as women step into their power, it's it's empowering for men too. It's like the masculine has also been wounded by the patriarchy and the men who are feeling, you know, a variety of other challenges because the women aren't in balanced power with them, right? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yes, and it helps give them give that gives them some relief. They don't have to have all the power about this stuff. It gives them some you know, gives them a little break. Yeah. Most yeah. men want to have a break from that. Right. It's like, oh, it's it's stressful to be, you know, have that, that pressure of the sole provider or just um all the ways in which uh yeah, there is is suffering for both men and women because of the dysfunctional money system. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Let's um so much we could talk about. Let's talk a little bit about um uh let's let's go into the power of um shame and how that impacts people and you know what what happens when people share more openly with you or in groups of people about their money stuff um yeah the the power of breaking through our shame uh so when you're talking financial shame i think that's what you're talking primarily yeah. like how shame maybe impedes people. So shame is a feeling. I have a few different, a little bit different, different definition of some other people. Shame is what we feel, I believe, when we feel like something is wrong with us. The core of us is wrong. Our calcium in our bones is wrong, flawed, inadequate, inept, whatever. And when we're living our lives from that shame place, usually, uh, well, usually we have people who have toxic shame, so to speak, are usually people who have been wounded in some kind of way in childhood, in primitive ways. Safety, mm-hmm. security was taken away from them, or someone told them they weren't okay, something was bad or wrong about them repeatedly. And so when you're living with that kind of sense of feeling like something is really wrong or flawed about you, it's going to impede and hinder everything you do in your life. And money is a big, you know, can be a big part of that. So when we're helping people and we're looking at, I think one of the biggest ways to break your shame about money is to talk about money and, let, you know, open up about it. Have it be a direct conversation anywhere you go, negotiating prices with people, negotiating salaries with employers, um, talk about it with family when there's not been fairness perhaps sometimes or you feel burdened about money or you think there's injustice in some way. Start to open up that dialogue and conversation because you can break your shame. Breakthrough is a strong way to put it maybe, but at least you'll start to lessen your shame 
You take the power away from it. If you let yourself have conversations about money. But because shame really will take us down. It causes people, when, when people have been traumatized and they live with a core sense of shame, it can take people to places where they, aren't, they don't feel worthy about earning and they're really, really frightened about earning and they will hold themselves back in many fronts. Or it can go the other way where people become obsessed about, you know, having to earn. Multi, I have some multi-millionaire clients that have been like this, just having to be driven by finances cause of shame because they're not feeling good enough. And the only way they thought they could be good enough is if they have lost money. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it's so important to recognize that this suffering is really, financial suffering can impact anyone of any economic status. And uh, so, so important to acknowledge that. And, you know, I've seen it. I've done a lot of uh, women's groups and workshops and just when people have that safe space to open up and share their money story there's always a lot of tears and just relief that they ultimately feel because they felt like they were so alone in their neurosis or their you know funny beliefs about money and um, I feel like shame really keeps us feeling isolated and and not asking for basic financial help and just feeling um, really self-critical because we're not really engaged or open to say, oh, most people are struggling with money in some way, but it's so taboo. We just kind of assume everyone has it all together. Right, exactly. And it looks like we compare our insides to their outsides. It's an old true recovery circle. And when when you compare your insides, how you feel to what somebody looks like on the outside, you're always going to come up on a short stick. You don't know what they what they're going through underneath mm. inside them. So yeah, I definitely feel like comparing is a is part of the, what drives shame too. But yeah, opening up, just sort of getting some fresh air in there. It's like we're all human. We're all making tons of mistakes. We're all trying to learn. Evolution is still happening. None of us are very perfect. <laughs> mm. We're all just kind of flopping around here, doing yeah. nothing. Yeah. Let, tell me a little bit more about this human desire to belong, too, because I feel like that is really uh, driving a lot of people's behaviors. We see it, you know, in status spending and, and just uh, the modern world. So much of our self-image is, is built around our financial status. So, so what is that desire to belong and how does that play into people's spending? Well, I think you're hitting it on the nail when you're talking about the status part of it. it we, so we're herd, you know, humans are herd animals. We are. We want to be part of the herd. We want to belong. We want to fit in. We want to be a part of because we need other people for survival. We're not like a, fro- a frog or a you know, salamander that can go out there and live on its own without other salamanders. We need other people for our basic survival. So it's in our core to try to get to belong, to be a part of be in the group, to fit in. And so I think what you're talking about is that now it's become statusy. Like in order to belong, you have to have the right shoes or the right car. Or the, you feel like you belong if you, be, if you have those right. Is that, that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. People will tend to feel more like they belong if they, the outside looks like they belong. Right. <laughs> Wearing the same uniform or driving the same car or being in those clubs, supposedly. When mm-hmm. true belonging really comes from inside of us, right? It's really about 
being connected to other people from our insides, feeling loved and connected to and bonded and important to another person, important to other people, important to the group, having a role, having a purpose. Mm. That's our true belonging. That's what's really going to help us be in the herd, not having the right car. Right. But we've been sort of led down that material promise. We've been promised that that will bring us the belonging when really, indeed, it doesn't necessarily work that way. It might yeah. work a little bit, but I don't think it's going to be the final answer. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's so true. It's uh, <laughs> it's really complex, yeah. and we're so socialized and, and in our culture to uh, to act particular ways, and and um, the economy and the way it's set up really has so much influence and power over social behavior. Um, right. Well, let's. Let's uh, take a little break here, and when we come back, um, a couple things I'd like to talk about is um, kind of your thoughts on is there such a thing as the rational consumer? Like, what what is it that's driving um, people to to spend? You know, in economics, there's there's kind of this um, tenant that there are uh, rational consumers. So, just wanted to get your your perspective on that. Uh, whether that's true or not, and uh, and also talk some more about addictive behavior and how people can identify um, addictive spending and, and how to address that and what's in the book. So we will be back in just a moment. Are you ready to enjoy greater financial freedom? Perhaps you're like Emily, a creative entrepreneur who wants to increase her income to provide for her family. Using the free video training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com, she learned the secrets to accessing hidden resources and creating lasting wealth. Emily learned a persuasive negotiation technique to bring in more money with her top clients. She boosted her credit score and opened new financial doors while reducing expenses. And she took specific steps to strengthen her existing relationships and create a safety net for her business. With the Discover Your True Wealth training, thousands of women have improved their bank balances and secured their family's future. With this free video course, you'll transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. Take charge of your financial situation with the training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com. Welcome back. We are here with Sally Palian and just so enjoying her perspective as a, a psychologist for decades working with people and their money. I'm an economist and there's this uh, myth of the rational consumer in economics and uh, basically, you know, that we have these fixed preferences, that we always act in this rational way that measures, um, you know, benefit versus loss, and that we're like these calculating uh, mathematical machines with every single purchase. And uh, so I would like to hear your perspective on the myth of the rational consumer from a psychologist's perspective. What other influences are... are um, 
are acting when when people choose to to purchase something or or make an economic decision? Well, I would guess uh, my sense of many many other factors. I wouldn't. I don't know that I agree that there is a rational consumer. Maybe there are some people that are that, but um, some people are truly impulsive, right? Mm-hmm. And caught with the moment of whatever. Some people are very influenced, not rationally, but by you know, sale, things like sales, things like deals that they get, and they buy all kinds of things that they don't want just because it's on sale or that they don't need just because it's on sale. Um, so I think that fear drives people to spend. I think peer pressure drives people to spend. If other people are out spending or out with their friends shopping or they're out with their friends at a restaurant, they're ordering more food, other people will order more too. So I think there are many, many other factors in addition to um, being rational, most of our human behavior is not necessarily rational or what we can look at on the outside and think it's conscious. I don't think people are very conscious oftentimes when they spend. We have lots of compulsive, impulsive spenders. And the whole system is set up that way. Credit cards, the plastic, everything is set up for people to spend impulsively and compulsively spur the minute pressuring you to want to buy right then. It's not rational at all. And I think of it as... um, I don't know, the part that's really fascinating to me about money and values and how people spend, it's almost that we're all as unique as a thumbprint, that sometimes we will spend crazy amounts of money on some things and other things we will be so cheap with we won't let ourselves spend money on like name brand soup or name brand shampoo. Or, but other people have to have the expensive shampoo, but they'll be cheap on their kids' shoes or whatever. We all have our strange, unique thumbprint, our unique fingerprint that makes us be who we are. We're completely irrational. I think it's irrational. It doesn't I know. Make sense. It's not consistent. <laughs> <laughs> we all know people who are like that. And we all are all like that, really. We all have things. That, again, it comes to our values. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't buy the rationality thing. I don't know. I'm not an economist, and I'm sure there's um, but I think that in terms of human behavior, we can't count on our rational. I wish we could, because we'd be a lot. We might be a, life would be a little simpler sometimes. But right. Yes, absolutely. I so agree with you. I think it's uh, it's fascinating. We really need to update economics, and there is the field of behavioral economics, and people are finally realizing. Oh, we're social creatures, you know, there's the influence of that, especially with the rise of the internet and our behaviors have changed so much to think we're some mechanical, you know, calculating machine with every purchase is just uh, a ridiculous thing. (laughs) (laughs) The economists who make those those theories might be rational that way and they might be calculating with every decision. I wish I could be, but I'm not. I'm probably better than most people, but I still can't be. Right, so, yeah. right. And and I think they wanted to make uh, economics more of a hard science than a social science. So they could have equations and factors and gra- more graphs, you know, that were um, based on hard data um, <clears throat> instead of accounting for the more feminine things like our emotional landscape, like our, you know, behaviors based on beliefs that came from childhood, like you spoke to, and we're just uh, very complicated uh, creatures here. So I, I absolutely agree with you that that's, that's a myth of the rational consumer. Um, 
Right. Yeah. And oh, Glenn. Go ahead. Well, the other the other side of it is that um yeah, we're not we're not very rational and we have a long way to go to become rational. And we have so many different influences from childhood that drive us. Mm-hmm. So many. How our parents handled money, how grandparents handled money, there's things that are just generationally passed on that make us totally irrational. Our neighborhood we lived in, whether we had more money than our neighbors or less money than our neighbors, job opportunities, or who we marry, different opportunities that we have. There's so many different factors that play into people's spending that I don't, yeah, I don't buy the rational consumer. <laughs> mm, yeah, so fascinating. Um, yes. <clears throat> let's talk more about people's behavior and uh, addiction. And since this has really been your specialty, not only money, but all those other areas that addiction shows up, um, just explain to us a little bit more about what you've learned about addiction, how people could identify, you know, addictive spending. Okay, great, Crystal. So where I come from with my my approach to money is that I really brought out in, in my book, Spent, sort of I teased apart how people uh, could be classified as addicts, financial addicts, versus being just a problematic uh, person with money versus a normal. What does normal look like? Normal looks like a certain way and problematic looks a certain way, and addictive looks a certain way. And when we're in a, some people are on kind of like we get into trouble sometimes. We go through little bouts where we maybe get unemployed for a period of time or we have some extra expenses we didn't count on, and so we are short with money for a while. That's like a normal thing. We go through ups and downs of things, different periods in our life. We have more money than others. We make wiser choices than others. We're clearer than others. Then there's other periods of our life when, or other time, other people that maybe take those normal times and they stretch them and they get on a slippery slope. So if they're in a little trouble, they just throw the towel and, and you know, go overspending or go off their budget or whatever. And then they might accrue a lot of credit card debt, perhaps. They might get 3000 They'll spend a year paying it off. Next time they might get 5000 spend a year paying it off. Next time it might be 10000 Harder to pay off. takes longer. Um, and so that person is kind of on a slippery slope. They're increasing their problem over time, slowly, but they're on a slippery slope, possibly leading to addiction. And when you're in, like, full-blown addiction, you're looking at people who are um, have increased their debt to the point where it's hard to pay off. They now are pressured to pay all the bills. Um, they're, they might feel uh, that they, make, they break promises to themselves. They say they're not going to do it, and they do it. They say they're not going to go overspend, and they go and do it, or they charge up things they didn't intend on buying. Um, they might be lying about what they're doing. They might be hiding things, lying to other people, hiding purchases from others. They, um, it, it's going to increase, 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 and get worse over time. It might avoid people. It might confront them or challenge them. Um, they might spend more time in all of this than before. The people who are really in debt or compulsive spenders end up actually spending a lot of time juggling their money. And they really fret over it a lot because they have to focus on it because in order to get both paid, they've got to spend a lot of, you know, it takes a lot of energy to sort of figure out where the money's going to come from and run it back and forth from bank to bank or transfer it around. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, you know, you're in addiction territory when you're out of control, you're, you're making promises to yourself, you're not lying to other people, you're trying to hide it. 
um, and you're trying you spend money trying to conceal it. Hmm. Um, yeah. Wow, that makes sense. Um, yeah. What What do you What is the first step? I mean, what, I'm, it's a whole body of work. So I guess share whatever you feel like may be useful for listeners who feel like they may be struggling with this. Okay. So first thing, I always I'm, I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a psychologist. I encourage people to get into therapy, find support. Their support might not be their family or their spouse. And so find it somewhere. If it means a professional, you need to pay a professional to start telling the truth and reaching out for help. Um, coming out of, it's all part of coming out of denial, um, starting to admit to yourself, this is a problem. I need help. i got to find someone to find some way to get help. There are a million, there's so much help out there nowadays. You know, the Internet is just, you can look online and find some help. There's therapists you can call up nowadays. Um, so that's one thing. Um, what else? Reach out for help. If you're in addiction territory, um, start to not use credit card or credit cards or spending money that you don't have right now today. I mean, it's becoming very, very super frugal. Um, the Dave Ramsey people, they're very, you know, harsh, not harsh, I call it harsh probably, about really tightening down. You have to do whatever you have to do. Get six jobs if you have to to get yourself out of debt. I don't go that far, but I encourage people to really get practical about their spending. So that means starting to record it. I mean, recording money, people do nothing other than recording their spending and starting to look at it every week, every month. First of all, every day, every week, every month, just to see what you're doing. Yeah. That right there can change a whole person's life just by starting to really look at it and interact with it and have it, you know, own it as part of what, who you are. Yeah. If you can look at that non-judgmentally and just look at it, that will change you right there. Yes. Um, I absolutely agree. Those are some great suggestions and uh, and just, I encourage people to have have the courage, yeah, to ask for help, to, to really take an honest look at their lives and their behavior and and are those day-to-day actions really serving your long-term goals and how how to really bridge the gap from, you know, your daily uh, circumstance to where you'd like to be in the future. And I, I think that's super powerful to, to talk about it, to get advice, and to really know that there are financial professionals out there, whether they're financial planners and uh and a psychologist. I wish more, um, you know, uh, those were integrated more, where more financial planners, you know, kind of took the approach that you do with kind of the deeper behavioral uh, <clears throat> uh, drivers that are influencing people and, and helping people align with their values. Right. I know. I do, too. I wish more accountants were on board, too, because there are, I was at my accountant two weeks ago, my test was done, and he said, and I've went into this before because I've actually spoken I've spoken to accounting groups. He said that he feels as though there's many, many, many accounts that are in debt. They're not yeah. so hot with their own money. So, yeah, I wish we had it more integrated. I wish there was more permission for everyone to just be human and, you know, reach out for help and start dialoguing and collaborating together because we have different uh, sides of the same coin that could help people. Yeah. Speaking of that, you've worked with some couples around money. Could you talk some about 
Um, oh, you know, what, what happens when couples come to you and, and what results they kind of see by working on their money stuff? Well, one of, people come because they're in a power struggle about money, usually. And oftentimes we get drawn to somebody because they're our polar opposite. They are bring components, you know, to our lives that we don't have. Well, oftentimes they'll be a compulsive spender person with someone who's a bean counter, kind of depriver person. Um, and doesn't like to spend money at all, fearful of spending money. So there's a power struggle that can happen. Um, people come from all different. Sometimes people come in because they're both spenders or they're both not earning up to their potential. Uh, but generally it's about a power struggle. One person wants the other person to get with the program, <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. that program may be. Sometimes it can be that by the time they get in my office, they're already in a parent-child kind of uh, relationship where one is trying to control the other one's spending pretty excessively, and the more they try to control it, the more the other one has to go act out and be bad, and the more they're bad, the other one has to control it even more. So by the time they get in my office, that's kind of where they are. I don't mean to make light of it. Very painful. And mm-hmm. it's very common, too. Um, I like to help people get to a place where they start to understand where the other person's coming from. Because there's a whole world over there. You don't know where your spouse is at. And what makes them be, you know, try to get curious about who are you? Like, where do you, why are you like that? What is it? Who are you? You know, not necessarily why are you like it in an accusatory way, but why are you like it in a curious way? Who are you? What makes you be who you are? And what makes you value what you value? And what makes you act how you act? But if we can get into a place of being curious about who that person is over there, so different from us, right? We can start to, like, um, help them unpack some of their feeling, some of their shame, some of their guilt, some of their pain about mine. And then we can work better as a better team. So I like to think of it as instead of one person controlling the other one's spending, the other both people can be contributing certain components. Mm-hmm. The person who brings the spending is usually the one who wants to have more fun, have more pleasure, have more beautiful things, you know, do more fun things. And that's great. That's a really important contribution to a relationship. Hmm. The other one, who is the bean counter, usually is more practical. Like, we don't know. I don't know if we can do it. Let's look at these numbers. Let's see if we can afford it. And that's great, too. They have an important contribution to the relationship. Hmm. And my goal is to get them working together, bringing Hmm. both of their strengths. Man, I bet that is so satisfying, that kind of work. There's, I heard it's one of the number one uh, causes of divorce is money stress. Right. That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. It really does not have to be that way. It's really all about our security and safety that's getting played out through money. Yeah, to build that understanding, I love that suggestion of, of curiosity and um, really connecting more deeply um, instead of trying to judge and shame and criticize the other person's behavior, just building more understanding. Um, in the last few minutes here, let's uh, talk a little bit more about your book and tell us what people could expect to find in there. And um, yeah. Okay. So what I talk about in the book is I, I saw a little bit of what how money is a complicated problem, why it's a complicated problem, and um, I have like some questionnaires for people to look at their own money behaviors and also to begin to ask themselves where their money behaviors came from. There's lots of questions and questionnaires and 
forms to fill out so people can like so people can look at themselves to begin a self-reflection process. Because if nothing else, you can start reflecting on your money. That's an important piece. I've got a section about um, discerning the different kinds of money patterns or money behaviors that people have. Um, some people are compulsive spenders. Some people are under underachievers financially, et cetera. Some people might be financial hoarders, indulgers, deprivers, um, financial codependents. I break down all the different types. According to my system, there's other systems out there, but my particular system has a, uh, I have a money matrix that I put everybody in, everybody's style. And then I talk a little bit about relationships and how money can play out in relationships in different ways. Um, and also there's a whole phase around how to begin your recovery journey around finances, how to vision your future, looking forward to what your, you know, what, your ideal life would look like if money was not on the table. If you had all your needs met, what would that look like? It's an important exercise I love everybody to do because you start to discern the values through that. Um, how people can begin to change their thinking and also how they can um, live more abundance with their life. But another big section, Crystal, in the book is about how to develop a spending plan, which most people don't have an idea of how to do that. We try to squeeze ourselves into budgets but they're not practical, so I try to help people. I walk people through the steps of how to do a realistic spending plan and what to include in a spending plan and how to shave it, how to shave those numbers down if what you're spending is more than what you earn. Um, so I walk people through those steps, too, in the book. Wow, sounds like a really practical, useful tool that is... Um really accessible for people to really take it, take this into their own hands and then have conversations with their loved ones. And it just seems like, wow, that would be so helpful for anyone because we all have to deal with money, um, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Like it or love it, like it or leave it, we have to. Yes. Yeah. What, um, what's the best website or way uh, people can find you or buy the book? They can buy the book. The best way to buy the book is on Amazon, probably, and um, or through the Hazelden.org website, the publisher. The best way to find me is at my website, PositiveSelfCenter.com. Or Googling me will probably find people, get, get, get people to me, too. Great. Excellent. And uh, and people can follow the link in the write-up here on the website. Um, and the name of the book, if people are just listening uh, to the podcast, is um, Spent, Break the Buying Obsession and Discover Your True Worth. I just love that title. Um, right. Yeah. What, uh, any closing remarks you'd like to share? I don't have any closing remarks other than I always encourage people to be conscious one minute at a time. You're worth it. You're, whatever energy you can put into your own personal recovery journey is going to pay off immensely in the long run. And every choice you make has consequences. That's why I like for people to be really conscious. So the more conscious people can get, the more you might be able to see the, con- the choices, the, the consequences of your choices. Even if they're little choices, they take us in a certain path. So if every day you can choose to be more conscious and choose to make better decisions for yourself, Yes, my goal. Oh, I love that. And 
money is such a powerful uh, touchstone for that because we do deal with it every day and, and we're just so constantly engaged with it. It gives us a lot of opportunities to um, make better choices and to, you know, at least pause before we impulsively buy that thing or say that thing to our partner. And so I find money is just such a powerful gateway into greater self love, self-understanding, more empowered uh, claiming of our own self-worth and really understanding our, ourselves and our own behavior and ultimately connecting our values with our uh, behavior and being able to navigate this world and, and build true wealth and really be able to find greater satisfaction and joy and happiness uh, through through how we engage with the world. And so I am so delighted uh, to hear your stories and your wise perspective here today, Sally. Really appreciate you coming on and all your decades of, of good work of influencing people to, to be more conscious with their money. It's super inspiring. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. For listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.